This is the message given by Pastor James Lim during the evening worship service at Faith Presbyterian Church, Long Beach, California, for April 30th, 2023. The title of the message is Saved to Lead, Part 2. Well, if you would now open your Bibles with me, we continue, well, we take up the second, the latter part of last week's passage. If you turn with me to Titus 1, verses 5 to 9, we went through uh, the first four verses there, but I'll just read them again, and the the core of my um, sermon this morning, this evening, is primarily fixed on verse 9. So here now then the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 5 of Titus 1. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach, he must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined." He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he add his blessing to it this evening. Uh, last week we looked at Paul's instructions to Timothy to uh, put into order what remained of the church plants. Uh, there in Crete, uh, and he gives instructions regarding the qualifications of God's uh, under-shepherds. We looked at how uh, they must be godly under-shepherds, shepherds after God's own heart, both in faith, in doctrine, and in life. We saw how they must be godly, not only in their marriages and in their families, uh, but also in character, in the way in which they um, hold themselves, and in the way in which they take on Christian virtues and put off uh, worldly vices, as well as how they conduct their lives, uh, the, the, the character in which they uh, live. And so this evening, we conclude this section on the godliness of God's under-shepherds and how they hold firm uh, to, to the faith and to the gospel. So tonight, we see the godliness of under-shepherds as they hold firm in faith and doctrine so that they are able to pass it on and teach it to others, to, to hold firm to the faith and the teachings of the gospel uh, as they go about doing the ministry of discipleship, passing on the faith then to the next generation so that they can then pass it on to the next and so on and so forth to where we receive uh, the, the fruit of that 
uh, millennia later. So let's see what this, uh, what the godliness of God's under shepherds looks like with regards to first holding firm in the faith. Godly under shepherds must hold firm then to the faith that they were originally taught uh, by the apostles and scripturated in God's word. Um, so let's look at verse 9 here. Paul tells Titus, he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, right? This is important because he qualifies the trustworthy word. He qualifies it with what they were taught. And what that implies is they were taught by the apostles. They were taught according to the word of God of the Old Testament, uh, in which they had, as well as the, the, the letters that, were, that they also had, including uh, this letter to Titus. He must hold firm, meaning he has to hold tightly. He has to hold firmly the faithful word. That's what Paul uses there, another translation for trustworthy word. He, uh, the faithful word, the trustworthy word, the true word, a, true, a word that we can rely upon our lives on, the reliable word that includes the word of the gospel contained in the word of the scriptures. And Paul is encouraging, uh, uh, I guess he's requiring Titus um, to, to call under shepherds who hold firm to what, he, what was taught in the scriptures the way that Titus was taught. Um, because as Titus is teaching, uh, these, you know, either future or present candidates for, for being pastors and elders, these the under shepherds, they are being taught these apostolic truths um, of the gospel and of God's word. But also, you know, if these, if these men um, are converts, right, if they've converted and repented and been born again and repented and put their faith in Christ, the word of the gospel that they were taught, they have to hold firm to. They have to know the truth of the gospel contained in, in the truth of God's word, and they have to hold firmly onto it, right? Uh, he must be convinced of its truth and trust in it as, as trustworthy. I, I think this is something that um, we may take for granted, um, uh, and, but here, but we in the OPC, we we learned the hard way uh, what happens to a whole denomination when when there was there's a slippage in the conviction of of men holding firm to the trustworthiness of the gospel when it becomes less and less trustworthy in the eyes of of its future ministers and elders, um, then then the whole foundation upon which the Church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be built on becomes sinking sand. Um, and so God's under-shepherds must believe the truth of the gospel and of God's word and base their whole life on it. Uh, I think when, when Jesus said, you know, um, there was a, a wise man and a foolish man, and the wise man built his house on a rock and a foolish man built his house on sand and the wind and the waves and the waters came rushing by and the, the foolish man who built his house on sand got washed away. His house got washed away. But the man who built his house on rock, it stood firm. 
And then Jesus goes on to say, well, the same goes then for the man who builds his life on my teaching, on my word. And I think we can take the, that parabolic truth and apply it to every aspect of the Christian life as well as the Christian church and apply that then also to uh, God's under shepherds that the firm foundation upon which their faith stands is the trustworthy word of God the word of Christ and if they are firmly uh, fixed upon that word then everything else that they do will be firmly fixed upon that word and you can you know, you can continue to, to not to lay a new foundation, but build upon the apostolic foundation that has already been laid. But if you don't believe that foundation, then you won't build on that foundation, and then you'll build it somewhere else, and it will be sinking sand. And as we've seen over and over again in, in modern church history, maybe the past two, 300 years, uh, when that, that has not uh, been the case, churches have um, fall, you know, been washed away by the the flood and the tide of the fashions of the day, the philosophies, uh, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, and been washed away whole um, wholesale uh, down the road of liberalism, and to which they lose the lampstand of proclaiming the gospel. And so this under shepherd must hold firm to the trustworthy word as an anchor for their soul, an anchor for their faith and their life. They have to be moored into it. I, I, sometimes when the picture that I think about, about this holding firm is like uh, mountain climbers, you know, is that they have to, every, every step that they, they take up a mountain or down a mountain, they have to be anchored into a into something solid into a rock so they literally uh have they have hammers and they literally uh, nail themselves uh and, you know loop a, a rope and they have to hold on to that anchor lest they fall and that is the idea that that paul is conveying here they have to hold firm lest they fall from the trustworthy word um, so they have to hold firm, not just to the truth of God's word, but to the true word itself, to Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, to all the core truths of the gospel, uh, of his pre-incarnate deity, of his, uh, of his uh, incarnation, where God the Son became the Son of Man, uh, that... That he who did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing and humbled himself, emptied himself and be, took the likeness of a servant um, that in the fullness of time, uh, he was born of a woman, born of a, of a woman um, and took upon himself our humanity. And then he lived that perfect life without sin, all of his ministry and his teaching and his miracles uh, in his, in all the interactions that he had, in his expelling of demons and healing the blind and cleansing the lepers, uh, all of those things are true. Uh, they're not myth or they're not religious, nice religious stories with, with a uh, uh, 
a moral to it, like Aesop's fables, right, in which we extract some kind of life principle. But it's true, and it speaks to who Jesus is, the Son of God who became a man, lived that perfect life that we should have lived but couldn't. And then, in his own body, bore our sins as he suffered and died hanging on a cross in our place, bearing the wrath of God, bearing our guilt and shame, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in doing so, he who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that we can have that great exchange that comes uh, to those who put their faith in Christ by grace. Our sins for his righteousness. And then after three days, uh, God, God accepted his work and his service and his sacrifice. And he was raised up and exalted uh, to new and eternal resurrection life and glory. That he really rose from the grave after three days. That the tomb in which he was buried the uh, two days, but three days before, is now completely empty. The grave clothes are nicely folded. The rock was rolled away. The uh, Roman the Roman guards uh, were unable to uh, keep Jesus in the grave, and he burst forth in resurrection power and in being raised from the dead. It is a down payment and a guarantee and a foretaste of first fruits of our own resurrection. That we who are born again through in, in Christ uh, taste that resurrection spiritually in us. And one day, whether we die or, when, or whether Jesus comes at the, at the, on Judgment Day, we too then will be raised in glory as Jesus was. But if it's not true, right, then we of all people, Paul says, we of all people are to be most pitied because we, we thought he was raised from the dead when he wasn't. And we are still dead in our sins. But praise the Lord that the gospel is based in historical truth and fact, and it's not fiction. And so the, 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 the under-shepherd of God has to hold as true the gospel. But or else why become a shepherd? Why become a preacher of the gospel? Why become an elder uh, in a Christian church if you don't believe the Christian faith, if you don't believe the Christian gospel. Uh, we also have to hold firm then uh, the trustworthiness of God's word. Now, let me just uh, take a moment here and just encourage all of you that this speaks to what God's under shepherds ought to be and ought to hold. But what it also then means then is that if they're going to hold it in order to teach it, how ought you to learn it? You also then also have to, to uh, hold firm the trustworthiness of God's word as it is taught to you, right? And now it doesn't mean that you can't ask questions. It doesn't mean you can't have some doubts. But my encouragement to you is, is that, that um, 
so that if we have to teach it as trustworthy, you ought to believe it as trustworthy. Um, and we're going to do our best, and I'm going to do my best to show you how trustworthy it really is. Not simply taking it on blind faith, but to, to, to say, you know, uh, it's true, and you know, here are the ways in which it's true. It's true in our experience. It's true in our life. It's true logically. It's true in history. Uh, it is true according to God's word. It's true according to God's grace. It's true existentially. It's true philosophically. It's true relationally. It's true in all the ways it's supposed to be true, and we're going to do our best to teach it to you that way. But it's incumbent upon you to receive it that way. Amen? Amen. And so, so, uh, we, so as under-shepherds of God, we have to know this truth deep down in our hearts. Timothy says, Paul says this in 2 Timothy, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And then Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. And so under shepherds have to be convinced as the foundation of everything that, that, that he knows as truth. He has to live by it as the lens through which he sees his, everything and lives his life. Uh, that it would be a full and complete worldview in which he lives and moves and has his, has his being, that, that he lives experientially, intellectually, uh, and uh, in all the ways as true, because the word of God is true, the gospel is true, God is true. Uh, this this um, hit home, oh, maybe about, I don't know, maybe like 15, 16 years ago, um, I think it was not too long, well, 20 years ago, um, it, is that uh, soon after Taylor and I got, were married, we went and visited my in-laws, and they uh, live in uh, uh, eastern North Carolina, and they attend and are members of, of a, a mainline liberal Episcopal church. And I remember going to a service and they had a, a visiting priest, a visiting Episcopal priest there. And he was um, preaching on the Tower of Babel. And it was really interesting. He's kind of talking about it. And, uh, and after reading it, he kind of explains uh, what's going on. And then he, he said something to this effect. He says, I don't think, you know, this is, uh, you have to remember, this is when, when uh, the, the people were trying to build a tower to go all the way up into heaven so that they can um, be like God. And God struck them down in judgment, confusing their language, and as a result, dispersing them throughout the face of the earth. And this Episcopal priest said, you know, I don't think, I don't think all of this happened. And even if it did, I don't agree with God. I think he said this. He said something to this effect. I think God was wrong to confuse the languages of the people. He should be uniting people, not dividing them. In fact, I don't think all of this um, 
is true. And and so it really blew me away. I was blown away that someone could so flippantly and so openly deny uh, the veracity, the trustworthiness of of that narrative, and to question God, uh, to question God's judgment uh, to boot. And um, and I think that's. That is indicative of the all or nothing, um, uh, the all or nothingness of the trustworthiness of Scripture. If if all of Scripture is not trustworthy, then why 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 believe any of it, right? Um, and that's why you see, you know, in in this the slide towards. Um, progressive and liberal Christianity is that, you know, you chip away at the doctrine of inerrancy and infallibility little by little, you know, little by little, um, when, you know, people are deconstructing, kind of, kind of peeling away what they were taught. And, and it's really interesting that we're, we're getting here is that deconstruction, deconstruction, uh, of people's Christian faith is that they're peeling away at everything that they thought was true, trying to peel away what they thought was cultural versus what was uh, uh, inherent in, in Christian faith. And what they end up doing is they peel away everything to where they believe nothing. And if you take away, if you chip away little by little at the trustworthiness of the gospel, then you're, you end up chipping away at all of it. Um, because if if some of it's not true, then why believe any of it? But the doctrine of the trustworthiness of Scripture is that all of God's word is true. That's what we just read in in First First uh, Timothy three and and First Thessalonians. All of Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for rebuke, reproof. Um, and uh, and we receive the word of God as it's inscripturated. Uh, for what it really is, the word of God. And God doesn't lie, right? So um, so true under-shepherds have a firm yet informed conviction that God's word is true, not as a leap of faith without any reason, but based on self-attestation, right? What the scripture says of, of itself, the internal testimony and consistency, right? The Bible written by many, many authors over thousands of years contained in 66 books that are so consistent, so beautiful, so coherent, so unified that only God could have written it by his spirit, and then even the outside historical evidence of God's word. Um, in other words, we know that the Bible is true because when you look at it objectively as possible, right, you see that it is true and, and it's, been, it's been proven true over and over again in our own lives, in, in the culture, and in our own experience. Let me give you a, a few examples. Uh, there were Dead Sea Scrolls that had been burned but still preserved uh, when they first found the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were, and some of them were so burned, and then they they became, um, I, I guess they became really hard and brittle, uh, while they were still wrapped as scrolls. And if anyone tried to unpeel it in order to try to read it, they would all fall apart. But uh, at the University of Kentucky, they came up with a a new. 
uh, way in which to read these scrolls by what they did is they put the scrolls into an x-ray machine that read the, the red that, that un, virtually unfolded these scrolls digitally and they were able to read all the letters because the ink um, still the the remnants of the ink had discernible lettering and so based upon you know the way in which they took these x-rays so that they unfolded this scroll not knowing what was contained in it and it turned out to be a full and complete scroll the book of jeremiah and when they compared it to the to the modern uh, uh hebrew uh books uh, that we have word for word perfectly the same after 2,000 years, at the very least, exactly the same. Um, or here's, here's another, uh, another one that I, I thought was really neat. Uh, more recently, uh, I came across was, um, you know, when the Bible describes in Genesis Noah's flood, there in, in the narrative, God opens the floodgates of heaven but he, in the narrative, also says he opens the floodgates of the earth below. And scientists read that and they're like, there's no waters underneath the earth. There's the waters, but there's no flood, you know, there's no, how they, they scoffed at the, at the biblical narrative that there were floodgates that would, from which the earth would flood from below. But recently, not too long ago, from Brookhaven National Laboratories, there is a, there was a discovery of a whole layer in the Earth's crust, deep, deep down inside. Uh, I think they named, they called it ringwoodite. And what it is, is it's a rock in which water is, it's almost like a sponge. It's like a rock sponge. And there's water in that particular layer of the Earth's crust and contained in that layer is three times the water contained in the whole surface of the earth. In other words, three times of the water of the oceans is, is contained in, in the rock layer of this crust. And, um, and people read that and they're like, oh, so if 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 there were any if there were ever any event in which the water can re, the rock could release this water, the earth would definitely flood. And so the Bible again is is uh, was turned out to be true that there is uh, floodgates that could be opened under the earth. And so um, so the Bible is is true over and over again. Well, let's move on. Secondly, God. Godly under-shepherds must also hold firm not only to the trustworthy word of God and the gospel, but they have to hold firm to sound doctrine so that they can teach it to others. Why do teachers have to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught? Look at what it says there at the second part of verse 9. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So you have to learn sound doctrine in order to, in order to teach sound doctrine. 
A shepherd must teach, must be taught sound doctrine in order to teach sound doctrine. And so they have to hold firm to it first in order to teach it. And it's the circle, it's this beautiful circle of Christian discipleship by which we pass on sound doctrine from one generation to the next. That, that I was taught sound doctrine, uh, and here I am now teaching you sound doctrine. Parents um, and, and young people, you are learning sound doctrine. Uh, in order then to teach it to whoever else God calls you to teach, to your children uh, and to your grandchildren. Um, and, and so um, it begins then with, with teaching sound doctrine uh, from shepherds, right? And so why is sound doctrine so important? The idea of sound doctrine here is the same word, sound, uh, here it can also be translated healthy. It's 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 the word from which we get the uh, the word hygiene, hugios, which means health, that which tends towards health and wholeness. And so, if we hold firm to sound doctrine, uh, we are holding firm to to healthy doctrine, doctrine that leads us to to healthy faith and healthy life. And this is why uh, many of us, you know. Uh, maybe more, some more than others, but for me, this is why I came into the OPC and why I love the OPC. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, what I love about the OPC is we do take seriously sound doctrine. Um, we love our orthodoxy. It's, a, it's built into our name. Um, we love sound doctrine so that we can teach it and pass it on to the next generation and to those yet to hear and believe the gospel. Have you ever thought about um, kind of our, uh, the ministry uh, of any particular church at any particular time is that the things that we are learning now have repercussions for the generations to follow, right? That, that the people who sacrificed and laid the foundation for Faith Presbyterian Church who, you know, who took second mortgages out on their homes so, so that we could buy the land and build, build this church uh, over 80 years ago, right? If, if my math isn't, if I'm not mistaken, my math. But what they did and what they learned and what they taught uh, 80 years ago has repercussions today because the whole church exists as it is today for us at this moment. So what that means then is that we have to be good stewards of what we learn and what we teach for the next generation and the generations to come. May the Lord then continue Faith Presbyterian Church for another 80 plus years lest the, uh, until the Lord returns. Uh, and so everything we do matters. Um, and, and so we have to teach sound doctrine in order to have... Uh, healthy Christian lives. And, and what is indicative of us individually as Christians is also indicative of us as a corporate body, as a whole church, right? So here's the way I think about it, is if we don't teach sound doctrine and it's unsound doctrine, right? It's unhealthy doctrine. You know, think of it like food, right? If we don't give food that tends towards health, then what happens to the body? It becomes unhealthy. It becomes unbalanced. It becomes sick. It becomes weak. And what happens when, you're, when a body is physically uh, uh, weak, right? Let, think of it as, you know, 
um, underlying underlying um, medical conditions that that make uh, opportunistic infections that much more easy to have, right? Or uh, unsound doctrine being a kind of cancer that that starts off little by little and grows to where it eats up the whole church and, and the church no longer becomes a church, right? So, so the, more, the sound doctrine is not only for sound Christians, but for sound churches, healthy churches. And I really um, uh, I like uh, uh, some good friends of mine who, who uh, interned with uh, Mark Dever in uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church, uh, who wrote a book oh, maybe about 20 years ago called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. These are the, the nine things that healthy churches ought to be and to do and to have. And, uh, and he's taking it from this idea of, of, a sound, of teaching sound doctrine. And, uh, and let me just uh, add one more caveat here, and we're almost done, is that um, when we think of sound doctrine, we can't think of it merely as, as doctrinal facts, doctrinal propositions. We have to see doctrine in, in, a, in a holistic way in which they are truths not only for us to know, but for truths that that seep into us that ought to saturate our hearts in order to change us from from within that doctrine is for is for for living and i think i've mentioned this before that i really like alistair begg's um motto for for truth for life is where the learning is for the living you know that that are the the doctrinal truths that we learn have to have to uh work its way out into changing our lives, right? I mean, justification by faith alone isn't just a doctrinal formula. It's a truth that ought to change the way that we see everything, that our sins are forgiven, right? Think of all the sins that you and I have committed and God forgives them in Christ because Jesus died on the cross, uh, how black is the record of our sin, but yet by the blood of Christ makes us whiter than snow, right? Uh, it's one thing to just know it intellectually, but it's another thing to know it in your heart and to live in the freedom and the joy that that forgiveness gives to us. Or that we have the imputed righteousness of Christ given to us by faith, that the righteousness that we need in order to stand before a holy God is given to us freely, completely, comprehensively by grace through faith. We, we could never be righteous in our own eyes and in our own way, in our own strength. But God in Christ gives us a full and complete righteousness, an alien righteousness, a righteousness that is not our own, but is given to us wholesale so that when we stand by in before God by faith, we are completely and totally righteous in God's sight as if we had never sinned, as if we had been righteous every moment of every day of our whole lives. And that ought to change then the way that we see everything. Uh, if we, let me put it this way, if we 
are man pleasers, right? If we're, if we're people pleasers, why are we people pleasers? Because we want to be accepted. We want to find our justification in the eyes of other people who we think uh, are important to us. Uh, but when we know that we've been accepted by, by the God of heaven and earth as righteous, he is the only one that we really care about um, whose opinion counts. And then we're free to not worry about what other people think about us. And so we won't live for their acceptance. We live for God's acceptance because we already have it. We're not going to try to, to please other people because in Christ we already please the Lord. And, and so we'll be free. And uh, so, so sound doctrine ought to uh, lead us to a sound Christian life. And... Um, and so let me close here. Let me close with the, these uh, final thoughts that, um, that God calls pastors and elders to be shepherds after God's own heart, to be godly in their marriages and their families. Why? Because if they're not, if they don't uh, have well-ordered households, how can they order the household of God? They ought to be godly in character and conduct, that they ought to live uh, by grace that has saved them, that they ought to reflect Christ in a Christ-like way, to turn from vices and uh, to live in the virtues uh, of the gospel. And it ought to really change them, to transform them. And then they ought to hold firm the faith that had been taught to them once for all delivered uh, in sound doctrine that leads to a sound Christian life uh, that, that changed them and as they teach it can change uh, the church that they teach. And then generation after generation, this teaching in sound doctrine will continue to, to hold forth healthy churches, healthy Christians until Jesus returns uh, where he will see uh, the fruits of, of the, the godliness of these under-shepherds. And then one day um, he will say to, to us, to me, hopefully, you know, the Lord willing, and to our elders and the elders after me and the elders before me, pastors before me and after me, uh, you have been faithful over little. Uh, now you are faithful over much. Enter now into the joy of your master. Why? Because, because the Lord changed us so that we can uh, minister and be shepherds after God's own heart. And may it be also then with you as you follow um, the great shepherd of the sheep through the under shepherd that he has given to you. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for giving us uh, under shepherds after your own heart. We pray, Lord, for our church and for churches throughout uh, the world uh, that you would give uh, the Church of Jesus Christ godly under shepherds who reflect uh, these qualifications uh, as, as the very fabric 
uh, of their lives. Lord, be with our elders and be with me. And Lord, would you raise up future elders uh, for the church for the many, many years to come, uh, if it be your will, until Jesus returns here at Faith OPC. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.